0: Hey everyone, we're back. It's season nine. And this season of Beyond the Plate is brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. Ford's Gin, a gin created to cocktail. For our audio test, we like to ask our guests to name three of something or five of something. For you both, let's go with three of something for each of you. Larry, name three of your favorite farmer's market ingredients.
1: I would think that for me, the three would be a rose feel that we found at the market. Tongus Creamery, and of course, the different bread companies. Got it. Mark, name
0: three of your favorite farmer's market ingredients.
2: Right now, strawberries, sugar snaps, and what did I just see? Zucchini.
0: All right. You both sound good. Let's go. Hey, everyone. I'm Cappy, and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, the duo season. I'm a chef by trade and hospitality professional. By day, I head up Rachel Ray's Culinary Operations and co-founded her cooking and kids charity called Yummo. Five years ago, I had the idea to put together a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Hence, the name Beyond the Plate. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you listened before, we're so glad you're back. This season, we're featuring some of the greatest restaurant and hospitality duos in the industry, and we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that... As you just heard, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. Ian, they're back. They're back. We're back. This is so exciting. Everyone, that's Ian. He's our co executive producer, and you're going to be hearing more of him this season when we do these shout outs to our partners for a couple reasons. One, we love our partners. And two, we tend to geek out about them offline and figured, why not let our listeners hear how we genuinely feel about them? I mean, Cappy, what? We do 10, 15 calls a week about our partners? I mean, we genuinely love them. and We genuinely love Ford's gin. All of us here at Beyond the Plate love Ford's gin and, and drink it a little bit here and there. So psyched to be working with them again. And not only are we working with them again, they're back as presenting sponsor of Beyond the Plate this season. So we've got some fun things ahead. We're gonna cover a lot of ground this season, but let me just wet your palates a little bit. I'm a gin and tonic fan. I also love a Negroni. Don't forget about the martini. He a martini guy. Regardless, here's the deal with Ford's everybody. We all know seeing a bunch of different gin bottles at a bar, or a restaurant, or even if you're at a liquor store, can be a little daunting. So Ford's gin was crafted by bartenders for bartenders and at-home bartenders alike to make a really good gin cocktail. Simon Ford, who's been on the pod two times now, noticed bartenders had various go-to gins for different classic gin cocktails and thought, why not make a gin that bartenders could use that would work perfectly in all of these drinks? while keeping it at an accessible price. So that's what he did. He did. And speaking of bartenders, I actually was at a liquor store the other day. Bear with me here. And the guy that owns it said he was talking to a bartender who was recommending Ford's Gin. So, Cappy, can I keep talking about bartenders? Do it, do it. Okay. You're gonna wanna check out our Beyond the Drink series, which we'll air every other week, right here on Beyond the Plate. It's also brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin, because we're talking gin cocktails, of course. Got some great bartenders. And bartender duos this season. Yes, for the big duo season. We're going to let everyone get to this episode, but really quick, one of the things we love about our partners here at Beyond the Plate is how they all give back, and Ford's does so within the bartending community. Makes complete sense. They've also supported events and fundraisers and continuously have the bartending community in mind. To learn more about Ford's Gin, go to Ford'sGin.com and follow them on social media at Ford's Gin. Please drink responsibly. Ford's London Dry Gin, 45% ABV, Brown Foreman, Louisville, Kentucky. Ford's Gin is a registered trademark. Ford's Gin, we thank you. One more thing. We have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch. You can find a link in your podcast player or go to our website, beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, hoodies, and more. Again, that's beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Enjoy this week's episode. today's duo are one of, if not the most notable father-son duos in America. Can I say that? I can say that. You are. We'll start with dad, an icon, a pioneer. Chef Larry Forgione is hailed as the godfather of American cuisine and is largely responsible for changing the way Americans eat by using only seasonal local ingredients and quite frankly, beginning the entire farm to table movement. He's best known for An American Place, a restaurant he opened in 1983, earning three stars in the New York Times. He's been named Chef of the Year by my alma mater, Culinary Institute of America, named America's Best Chef by the James Beard Foundation, his American Place Cookbook won Best American Cookbook by James Beard Foundation, and plenty more. Most recently, he is the co-founder and culinary director of the Conservatory for American Food Studies located at the Greystone campus of the Culinary Institute of America in Napa Valley, California. His son, and now a dad himself, Chef Mark Forgione, is the acclaimed chef and owner of Peasant, Restaurant Mark Forgione, and One-Fifth. He's received Michelin stars, multi-star reviews from the New York Times, Star Chef's Rising Star of the Year, and more. I'm sorry, let me back up here. The youngest American-born chef to ever receive a Michelin star. Not bad. He was the winner of Iron Chef Season 3, the author of Mark Forgione, Recipes and Stories from the Acclaimed Chef and Restaurant, and is also a partner of New York City's Laotian restaurant, Keo. Please enjoy this season premiere episode as we go beyond the plate with chefs Larry and Mark Forgione. Guys, what a crazy talented father-son duo that honestly, I couldn't be more excited to kick this season off with. Larry, let's get going, let's start with you. Tell us what like you were like as a kid. What was little Larry Forgione up to as a kid? I was,
1: I guess, just a normal little kid. The exciting thing for me was that I had two grandmothers who loved cooking. One was my Irish grandmother who went to church every morning, came back, put on her apron and started cooking. And my Italian grandmother who had a completely self-sufficient farm on eastern Long Island in Port Jefferson. Those were just wonderful memories for me.
0: Yeah. Were you interested in food when you were younger?
1: No, I wasn't. I at, first, at one point, I was thinking about being a priest. And then after that, when I was older, I went to school to be a physical education teacher. Interesting. What were family dinners at home and whatnot growing up? Growing up, we always had uh, wonderful family meals. We In my home with my mother, she was very succinct in what Like every Monday was Monday, every Tuesday was Tuesday, every Wednesday was Wednesday. So you had the menu well in advance.
0: Was she a good cook or did you lean mostly on grandmas?
1: No, my mother was a good cook. She wasn't as adventurous or as, uh, say, knowledgeable as her mother or my father's mother. But uh, we had wonderful meals growing up.
0: When did you start getting interested in food?
1: Well, when I was at school, the first year I was at college, I contracted pneumonia and uh, missed the first, say, eight or 12 weeks of a semester. And they said that if you step back now, you get back all of your money and then come back the following semester. So I did that. And during the break, I started working with my cousin Donald at a, a catering company in Brooklyn, and I just fell in off with of it. And I sat out another semester and another semester, and then the rest
0: is history. And you eventually, were you in the first class at CA or the first class
1: at the Hyde Park campus, was it? I was in the first class that graduated, that spent both years in Hyde Park. Was Metz the president at the yep. time? Was he there? Yeah.
0: Amazing. Why did you decide to go to CI? Did someone talk you into that or did you just want to take the career one step further?
1: No, my my godfather, Donald, we talked to a diff. we went to a seminar or a talk about the Culinary Institute and learned all the different things. And we also met with some of the hotel people that were having apprenticeship programs. And after hearing all of that, we thought that it'd be better to get the education and the understanding of what was what's going on in kitchens and food.
0: That's pretty cool. I mean, culinary school then definitely isn't what it is today. Mark, tell us what kind of stuff dad was punishing you for when you were young.
2: You might want to ask him. <laughs> I
0: was going ha- to say, dad, why don't you tell uh, me about Mark? But you know.
2: No, I mean, listen. I was a good kid, but I definitely got into trouble. I kind of look at it as fun trouble. But again, you can ask him about that. I always like to have fun. I still do. And growing up, you got to think about it. My, my dad was, a dad, I think you were what, 26 yes. when, when I was born? Yeah, so, I mean, you try to think about that in, like, today's world. I think he had just quit his job, too. I was born in 78. You know, American Place opened in 1983. So my my early childhood, for very obvious reasons, you know, dad was working a lot. I, I remember coming to, like, wake him up on Sunday mornings, you know, and he would have, like, the whole face cloth over his eyes. and Let me <laughs>
0: sleep. It's my one <laughs> then day then, then, I get to sleep.
2: Right, right. And maybe at the time, I didn't understand it. But now, as I'm a grown man and a chef, I definitely understand it. And I couldn't even imagine. I just had my first son at 40. And I and it's still difficult being in this business. So I can't even imagine, you know, trying to start my culinary career. And not only culinary career, at the end of the day, he wasn't just running a restaurant. He was changing the way Americans eat. So I think I obviously began to appreciate that as I got older. When I was growing up, I had no idea. You know what I mean? I just... I thought dad's restaurants were cool. As my dad said before too, like, you know, he ate well growing up. Like we we ate very well. My mom's a great cook too. They actually met at the Culinary Institute. Most people don't know that. So we had like real dinners, you know, every day, uh, 5.30. There was always a home-cooked meal. We never had quote-unquote processed or fast food or anything like that for dinner. If we did, it was like a treat. But food was always the, something important in our family, in our life. It still is. And... It it was never like pressure to become a chef. We just, food was just always kind of front and center. I I thought it was for everybody until I got a little older and started going to other people's houses. And I realized, you know, food, having a freshly made meal wasn't common. There's a funny, like kind of famous or infamous story in our neighborhood that I grew up in. I went to eat at somebody's house and I don't know how old I was. We'll call it fourth grade, third grade, something like that. And... I got over there and like, you know, oh, what are we having for dinner? And I think the person's mother knew who my dad was or that my dad was a chef, at least. And she was like, oh, we're having raviolis. And I was like, ah that's great. I love ravioli. But, you know, the raviolis I was used to eating were, (laughs) I'm not going to say my mother was making homemade raviolis, but they were good, well-made, probably from the city, from Raffetto's or something like that, or from Little Italy. We just ate Real raviolis, and that was my first taste of Chef Boyardee. And true, this is a true story. I took a bite, and I literally had to get up and sprint into the bathroom, and I <laughs> threw up. No way! The bathroom. The mom got very upset. She got insulted, and she, you know, da da da. And she like called my mother, and she was like, "Come pick up Mark. I guess my food's not good enough for him." <laughs> that is
0: fantastic. I love that. Wait, so you were doing family meals like five 530- thirty. Larry, were you coming home to join these? Or were you at the restaurant or would you go back to the restaurant?
1: No, I was, we lived too far away. It would have taken, especially at 5.30, it would have taken hours to get there and back. But whenever I did have time, we always had a wonderful dinner. And the weekend dinners were also very relaxing because everybody in the family had to do something for dinner. They had to contribute either setting the table, chilling the water making the salad, peeling potatoes, all sorts of things. So it was a good time because that was a time that everybody could reflect on things.
0: Yeah. I like it. And so it's mostly Mark, you mom and you have siblings, right?
2: Yep. And the three out of the four are in the restaurant business now. My sister is the general manager of Peasant, and my brother is the corporate chef for Buddy V. I think
0: I realize that. That's cool. Did you spend a lot of time at the restaurant when you were young?
2: I don't know if a lot of time, but I have vivid memories of, you know, like going into the restaurant and standing on like a dish rack, you know, so that I could like see over the counter, you know, and like, you know, maybe them letting me like pick parsley or cut some berries or you know I like you know we, we, we did it a couple different times where I would come into the city and then again I have memories of maybe going to a Yankee game after or going to see the Rockefeller tree or again we grew up in Long Island so I wasn't like a city kid so it was like a big deal to like come in spend a couple hours at the restaurant having fun and then going to do something in, in the city and then as I got older I spent a couple different summers working in the kitchen I think my first full-time was probably 17 or 18. I think I did one like part-time summer leading into college. And then when I, my, I think every summer in between college was, was in a kitchen. And then I took my sophomore year off entirely. And that was when I worked a full year. And that was, I think after that year, it wasn't like I was decided, okay, I'm going to be a chef, but I went back to school, I think it was for psychiatry or forestry or something, where at this point I had become pretty skilled for an 18 year old college kid. And the story that I tell, and it's a true story, I had four college roommates and you know, at the time we all had a girl we were dating or seeing or whatever. So we had them all come over. So it was eight of us total and cooking in like a crappy, like electric kitchen kind of college house kind of situation, but I made them, like, you know, I was having so much fun, like, doing it. You know, I was making, like, Burblanc and, like, chicken with asparagus. <laughs> you know, again, college kids don't eat like that. And But I just remember I that was, like, kind of the moment where I was, like, I was cooking for these people and watching and seeing how much fun I was having. And I was drinking wine and, and my roommates were, like, setting the table with, like, flowers. And it was, like, I just remember being so, like, turned on by that. And the next morning, I had like psych class, and like I didn't want to go to psych class. So I was like, What am I doing? I'll finish college, but I'm, I think I'm just gonna, I'm probably gonna do this cooking thing. And it still it wasn't 100% decided at that point, but that was when it, I was starting to hear like the voice in my head. You have to remember too, man, it was like very hard to, okay, I'm gonna do what dad did. You know what I mean? I think, you know, I was a rebellious kind of teenager and to kind of like almost admit to myself, like, okay, I'm gonna do what dad did. Like, you know what I mean? I think that. Getting over that hump was probably the hardest part than anything.
0: How was that for you, Larry? Did you want him to cook or were you kind of letting him take his own path? What was going on in your head?
1: No, I never expected any of my children to go into the restaurant business. When you think of the time away from home, the amount of concentration it took to run a restaurant. So, but Mark, didn't you also make and sell dinners at college? Well, yeah,
2: we used to, it was called, I don't remember, I think it was like $5, or something, $5 in a dream. Everybody would give me five bucks and I'd go to the grocery store. That's fun. So I'd cook dinner for four people for 20 bucks.
0: Is American Place the first restaurant you actually, like the actual kitchen you worked in technically, or was it somewhere else?
2: Kitchen, yes. I worked at this place called the Hofstra University Club as like a server slash busboy slash bartender kind of thing. But the first kitchen job, like I said, it was like a part-time gig at an American Place. And again man just to like reiterate like I even at that age I didn't understand how important an American place was like to the country or to the world
0: even Is there a moment when you realized or figured out that it was?
2: It probably wasn't until I started to work at other restaurants and I noticed like the kind of attention good or bad because it wasn't all good but the attention that I was getting for being Everywhere I went, I was Larry's kid, Larry's son, you know, son of Larry, you know, and like every time I screwed up, you know, there was always one sous chef in the kitchen that would bring it up, you know, is that how your father showed you? Or, you know, imagine if your father tasted this. But I also, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, I think for better or for worse, it made me a a much better cook because I literally, I couldn't have an off day. I couldn't like make a mistake or maybe kind of just disappear if I was tired like I was so front and center in every kitchen that I worked in and like I said some sometimes it was bad like sometimes I had sous chefs just like out to get me because I think some people they had this vision of like you know us growing up on like the gold coast of Long Island and like me eating caviar and scrambled egg for breakfast and this like spoiled kind of rich kid coming in to, to be a chef. And like, trust me, I tell you, it couldn't have been more the opposite. Like as the stories you were just hearing, like, you know, we, we were a very humble, hardworking kind of group of people. And I think once people that I was working with, got to know me, they started to understand that a little bit, but, you know, and I get it like from the outside looking in, it was like Godfather of American Cuisine. This kid probably has the golden goose or whatever, but it was interesting to say the least to be life with young son as a young cook in the early 2000s.
0: And so when you went to college, you took the management route, right?
2: I did. It was that dinner that made me, that was when I decided to change my major from forestry to hotel restaurant management. And it turned out UMass had a great program. And that was all coincidence.
0: You didn't do culinary school after that, right?
2: No. After college, I traveled Europe. And that was also where I really got bit by the bug a little more. We stayed at like an Italian farm and we stayed with these people in Switzerland and I'd never really seen firsthand like farm life like that where they make everything, I mean everything from the bread to the olive oil. I mean like these people made everything and I just, I like fell in love with the way that they were in love with food, you know, kind of like, I think every chef talks about that moment where you like, you might taste something or, and you know, for me, it also happened that at an American place, like first time I tasted my dad's crab cake like my like world like kind of shook a little bit and there was like a dinner that i had when i was in calabria that, and it was just like chicken with eggplant like it wasn't anything fancy by any means we're at a farmhouse but i just it like rocked my world and then i came back from that trip again worked got bounced around a little bit and then i decided that i wanted to go somewhere to not be larry Ford Jones son anymore kind of thing so i went to europe where The cooks didn't know who I was or who any chef in America was. I was in France. Like at that time, it was the early 2000s and like nobody gave a shit about anything going on in America culinary wise. So it was like, I got to just get my butt kicked.
0: Last season Will Godaro is on the podcast and we talked a lot about his relationship with his dad who was in the industry and like things he would go to him for, which it sounds like he is close with him and bounced a lot of things career wise off of him. Is that similar to you too? Are you often, or were you getting dad's advice as you were taking your path in the industry?
2: Yeah. I think once, once I decided to do my own thing in particular, I don't think I've ever done anything without asking advice or having him look at it first or quote unquote, give kind of a blessing. Or I think I've gotten, I think it has gotten for me, um, you know, now we work together. I think in the early part of my career, I was kind of a little younger and I don't know if egotistical is the right word, but trying to like, I need to do this on my own to prove something kind of thing. But again, there was always like that, approval or blessing you know now that's all kind of gone we have a very symbiotic i think we probably text or talk daily about ingredients and ideas and or even just cooking together
0: was he like tough on you
2: tough on me i wouldn't say tough on me no listen i tell everybody my toughest critics are my parents my wife and now even my son believe it or not but they're the ones they're the ones that are the most honest and they should be and they'd keep you humble everybody else will tell you great but the people closest to you will keep you humble and tell you the truth.
1: One thing that happened which I think really solidified how Mark and I were gonna work what being culinarians together was Mark came to me after a couple of years of cooking and said that he wanted to go to work at one of the three star restaurants or three Michelin star restaurants in Europe. So I said, Well, you research them, look them over, and when you decide which one you want to, if I know somebody I'll make a call. And he came back to me and said, well, I'd like to, I really love the stuff that Michelle Gerard is doing. And Mark never knew that I worked with Michelle Gerard. So I thought that was really unbelievable. And when Mark got there, he was the first American to work there in over 20 years. Wow. That's so cool. You're like, oh. It was another
2: kid, but he only lasted two weeks.
0: How are you when you got there? Was it a big shock, kitchen shock for you going to a French kitchen?
2: It was just a culture shock. This was, it was 2003-ish, something, somewhere around there. And it was, it's hard to put into words unless you see it, but the town of Eugenie had like 400 people that lived there. And I think 300 of them worked at the restaurant and there was nothing within 30 miles outside of, if you draw a circle on a map, there's nothing, zero, like nothing, it was just, Vineyards and fields and nothing. You're in the middle of nowhere. I came from New York City at the time, so it was like pretty wild. And then I didn't speak French. I thought I could get by with what I knew, but when I got there, I realized real quick that I didn't speak French. That was probably the hardest part because everybody just basically treated me like I was dumb because I couldn't understand what they were saying. But it took like six months to like I don't know get in the rhythm. And then once I got in the rhythm, it was really beautiful. But I didn't. You know, I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a TV. I didn't have a computer. It was like, there was no, I don't even know if there was, I guess there was, but it wasn't like it is today. You know what I mean? Like my dad and I were just talking about this, I think on Father's Day. I used to just go for walks on my day off because there was nothing else to do and there was nobody else to talk to. If I wanted to talk to somebody at home, I had to go to a pay
0: <laughs> Larry, we touched a little bit on Mark's path. Can you give us one or two restaurants you worked in? No, I'm just kidding. Honestly, this episode can probably be four hours about your whole path in in kitchens in a great way and the impact you've made, not only in American cuisine, but food culture in general. But honestly, if we did want to hear about some like major restaurant kitchen highlights to kind of wet the listener's palate, and I've said this a number of times in our episodes, but like if anyone listening, I hope, 100% of you are familiar with Larry, but if please go and do your own research to uh, look into his contributions to food in general, food culture, American food history, all that good stuff. But um, what would you share, Larry? Share as many or as little?
1: Well, one of the most exciting adventures I had in the kitchen was cooking at the Connaught Hotel in London. I really went there to cook with a particular chef and I wrote to him at, he was the chef at Maxime's, and I wrote to him, and he wrote back saying, well, I'm not, if i I'm—if you want to work with me, come to London, that I'm not in Paris anymore, so come on over here. So I was supposed to go for four months, and I ended up staying, I was ended up there for two and a half years. And when I came back, I had, my first job was with Gerard at, at this restaurant called Regine's, that at 11 o'clock turned into a, nightclub. And from there I went to the River Cafe and had a great challenge at the River Cafe. The River Cafe was moving along but without any direction. And when I took over the reins there, that we just buzzy Michael O'Keefe and I had an understanding that, you know, if I was allowed to run the restaurant or run the kitchens the way that I thought and produce the food that I thought was a good thing to do, that we would become one of the best restaurants in New York. And about a year later, we became one of the best restaurants in New York, according to every critic there was. I stayed there till 83 and then opened an American place. At what moment did
0: utilizing local produce and other ingredients become so important to you?
1: I think it was when I was in Europe. I started to see all these incredible ingredients coming in the back door of the Connaught or the delivery entrance of the Connaught. And it was all, a lot of times it was just like a small farmer who went out and picked some mushrooms and would bring them to the corner. We got our lamb from Kent. Just everything that was coming in was an, it was an amazement to me. And then the big aha moment that I had was, Bourdain, the chef had brought in this poulet de bresse and he cooked it, all the rest of the kitchen, like I thought we were in a, a you know a religious ceremony, and everybody got a little taste of it and taste of it, And my reaction to it was, "Well, this tastes just like my grandmother's chickens." And then realized that we had all of this wonderful stuff in America. We just weren't utilizing it. We needed to find it and put it on center stage. And that's why I've always said with my careers, I was really trying to build like the bread basket of ingredients. I remember when I wanted to get fresh ducks from Long Island and I went out there and the guy told me, no, he only sold frozen ducks. And I said, well, weren't the ducks not frozen before you froze them? And he said, yes. And I said, well, can I get like 36 a week before you freeze them? And he said, no, that's it. no." Well, I finally found somebody who would do it, and then uh, it was just all trial and error. Everything's trial and error when you're in the restaurant industry. Can you tell, is this free-range story true? This is crazy. Yes, I was working. I was at the Connaught, and the... Piano player came in and he had a basket of all these multicolored eggs that were not dyed, they were just multicolored. So I asked him where he got them from and he told me this little farm stand in uh, upstate New York. And uh, so I went and met, I figured if this guy's crazy enough to grow chickens that lay multicolored eggs, he must be, he's probably a good choice for working with to create these chickens. And we, after about a year, found the right cross, the right feed, the right, the right everything. And I couldn't think of what to call them because farm fresh was, anything was farm fresh. Everything was farm fresh, all natural. Everything was all natural. So I tried to think of what possibly could I call these. And I was as nerdy as this sounds. I was reading a book about the history of chickens in America and America actually had a it had a chicken that was native to america called the prairie chicken it's in the description it said well it roams it would use the forest for protection and they would come out and freely roam the meadows eating and then they'd get back inside so i thought okay free range that sounds good i came across that
0: and i was like what like i I need to confirm this. That's mind blowing. Talk about leaving a stamp on American food and culture and all that. I wish
1: I had a nickel for every time it was used.
0: That was my next question. You own trademark.
1: It? You can't trademark something like that.
0: Okay, so This James Beard story, you'd wanted him to come to, was it American place you'd want him to come to, but he hadn't?
1: It was the Rivet Cafe. And uh, I decided when I was going to go full bore American that I needed some guidance and needed somebody who knew what was going on in America over the years. And James Beard always came up front and center. So I was trying to get him to come to the restaurant and try some food. And he just, I don't know, did I guess they thought of Brooklyn as some foreign country. So what I started to do is, as we got ingredients in, I'd make a little gift basket and send it over to him. And by the third gift basket, he finally came over. And from that point, we've been friends. And he ate at American Place Restaurant every, I think it was every Thursday. Did you
0: know your food was that good when you were sending him these baskets or do or was it more of the concept of what you were doing on the local front with food that you wanted him to see, or, or was it kind of both of those things?
1: I wanted him to see that I was going back to the roots of American cooking. So there was no, nobody ever heard of morels from America or chanterelles from America. The better kitchens used canned mushrooms from France. And he was just very excited. Like he said in an article that the River Cafe, or I was the first person to serve buffalo in, in New York in 60 years.
0: And a little birdie told me that he was instrumental in helping come up with the name
1: for an American place. That's true. An American place was named by James Beard. So you've worked with some incredible people,
0: but on the contrary, Larry, some incredible chefs have worked under you. I was excited to learn another friend of the podcast chef alex guarnaschelli spent some time in your kitchen yes she did i've always been intrigued by alex's journey you know through europe and here and whatnot but i had asked alex about her experience working with you and i want to just play this message really quick okay Uh, we'll take a listen
2: i remember having next to no experience working in Larry Forgione's kitchen, and he was so intimidating. He asked me to work the grill one night and cook steaks, and I literally had no idea what I was doing and overcooked everything. So he just stopped and looked at me halfway through dinner service, and instead of giving up on me, he just said, take it off two minutes before you think it's cooked. Kind of Obi-Wan Kenobi, kind of zen, kind of made no sense, and yet it made all the sense in the world. And he was always doing stuff like that, talking like that, Just very valuable
1: little nuggets of information delivered with so much patience and just a tiny bit of New York City ennui. It's very nice of her to say that.
0: She was great. I asked her for one little thing and I I got flooded with a bunch of fun little stories. Do you remember what kind
1: of cook she was in your kitchen? I do remember her being there. As she said, she had next to nothing for experience. And I always, when I, when there were young culinarians in the kitchen, I always wanted them to experience different stations because if not, they would, it wouldn't be a great, a great learning experience. I didn't want them to learn one thing. I wanted them to learn as much as they can.
0: Yeah. Love that. She went on to say that when she was working for you in 1992, she said you were the most important chef in New York City and you had a wonderful sense of humor and approach to everything, which it seems like was later exemplified by the story she told me of when she dropped a whole flat of eggs on your feet and you were wearing suede loafers. (laughs) And she said you just looked at her, shook your head and kept walking.
1: What else could you do?
0: Right. That's so funny. Larry, was there a moment you knew Mark had it in him as a kid, like the cook
1: Gene, if you will. I knew it after he, like when he was in the kitchens at an American place, he was really good and very focused and just a a wonderful person to have in the kitchen. And we were talking one time and the Culinary Institute came up and I just said, don't Culinary Institute, you're already more advanced than anybody coming out of the culinary right now. So if you're thinking of staying with cooking, do that. And then that's when we discuss management school or something like that something different so Mark after France
2: there's actually a fun story that I think you'll probably enjoy It was right after my, my parents got to watch the final of the next Iron Chef they were in the crowd they allowed them to be in the crowd but they got shuffled out when they made the announcement because you know it's it was a taped show so like they couldn't have anybody know who won right but the battle was battle Thanksgiving. And I knew I had this idea of what I wanted to do. And I remember kind of, again, as we were just talking about, kind of bouncing it off, you know, my dad. And he didn't say don't do it, but he responded with, well, that sounds a little risky. <laughs> that's kind of all he said. Sounds kind of risky. This is a big deal, Mark. And I was like, I, and I know. I just feel like this is what it was for. And that's a whole other story. But anyway, so after the after the, the finals, they got to watch the whole thing and... After it, I met them in the city at a bar and my dad pulls me outside, you know, on air. I can't tell them that I told them I won, but let's just say that we were all pretty happy. And, you know, where everybody's kind of going crazy and, you know, cheers and that, Anyway, my dad pulls me outside. We're outside the Gainsbourg Hotel in the meatpacking. And he kind of puts his hand behind my head. And, you know, he's like, you know, listen, today I think was the first time. And I totally get this again now, especially being a father. He's like, he basically said to me, like, today's the first day I realized that you're your own chef. Like you're, you're a man. And I keep in mind, I'm 32, I think at the time, 31, something like that. But he said like point blank, like that watching you kind of own what you were doing. You know, at the end of the day, I was cooking for Donatella and Michael Simon and Bobby Flay and Morimoto and Alton Brown. And, you know what I mean? Like these are like pretty serious players, especially at that time in the culinary, Simon and Majumdar. He, st- he just said, he said, well, me watching you handle yourself the way that you did and cook what you did and pull off this crazy idea but the fact that you did it, you know, and you know, we both started to cry and we were both hugging and you know, it was kind of like this moment. And then out of nowhere, this we get a tap on the shoulder from this homeless guy and the homeless guy, he's crying and he looks up at us and he goes, he says, he goes, listen, I'm clearly, I'm homeless here in the city. And I haven't talked to my my son in whatever it was, 22 years, but he must've been listening to this whole conversation. I didn't, we didn't notice him there. He said, you know what? I'm going to go find my son. And just so I can give him a hunk. Guys. <laughs> I did, it, was cra- it was one of the craziest stories. Time I time. tell it, I get a little choked up. But it was one of the craziest moments. But when you just asked, like when you had just asked him, did you know the moment where you knew that he could do it? I Whether he remembers or not, I think that was the moment where he knew I was going to be okay.
1: Yeah, I remember it well.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Thanks for telling that one. Mark, some key highlights you want to share after coming back from Europe up until opening of your first restaurant?
2: Yeah, again, once I came back from Europe, right before I went to Europe, I got to meet uh, Laurent Torrendell and we opened BLT Steak together. And that was a cool experience because I got to see the beginning of, like, I feel like it would have been like, and I'm not comparing BLT to an American place, but you know, BLT exploded. And to have not only a ringside seat, but I was very involved in helping and creating these dishes because Laurent wasn't very experienced with American food and he wanted to do his spin on an American steakhouse. And I had had that experience obviously coming from where I came from. So to like be there from the get-go of something that exploded the way it did was I think instrumental in quote unquote like me seeing like what it took and how lucky you have to be, and the things you need to have, like on your menu, and who do you press wise, and like you know what I mean. Like it wasn't just the cooking at that point; it's watching a business being born.
0: And so you were involved from the first BLT, and then the first
2: BLT. Most people don't know this, but it was myself Laurent Torindel, in the basement of the defunct, at the time was AZ, which then turned into BLT Fish, but AZ had just closed, and they were renovating then Pazzo, which became BLT Steak. But while they were renovating Pazzo, it was literally me and Laurent Tourndel just in a kitchen together. And he would like come up to me and be like, so how do you make barbecue sauce? You know, what, what goes into steak sauce? You know what I mean? What is Maytag blue cheese? You know what I mean? And it was so weird because this is all the stuff that my dad had been teaching me my whole life. So it was like, And this was before France, by the way. So it helped open BLT Steak. Obviously BLT Steak turned into this amazing thing. But when I had met Laurent, I was already signed up to go to France. So we all knew it was only gonna be six months or whatever it was that I was working there. And that was the deal. help open BLT Steak and we'll see you later. But then when I got back from France, he was opening BLT Prime and he asked me to be the chef. And that was my first chef de cuisine job, which, could argue I wasn't old enough to do it, but at the same time, you know, you either sink or swim. And I looking back at the 27 year old me or 26 year old, however old I was, there's a lot of things I did wrong, but at the same time, I it was basically again, like I said, sink or swim. So I had mm-hmm. to swim, and then I did that for a while, became his corporate chef, and again, I think I opened five, maybe six one, two, three, four, five, it was like five BLTs in two and a half years, so it was almost like going to school for opening restaurants. And what I mean by that is like, you could work your whole life in this business for 20 years. And if you've never opened a restaurant, there are some very serious lessons that you need to know that is six months out of opening the restaurant. You know what I mean? And I think that's why I was able to do things at the young age that I was able to do them because... When I gave notice at BLT, I was 20, see, I opened Forge in 2008, which means I was 29. So I think I gave notice at BLT when I was 28, give or take. And I had already opened, I opened the grill room, I think, with my dad. And then I opened Pazzo with Patricia. It was almost like every restaurant I did was an opening. And then I opened, I helped open um, Above with Kazuto and my father again. And then again, all the BLTs. So by the time I was 28 years old, I had opened like 10 restaurants.
0: Do you love the opening, or do you just know how to do it well? What are your? Do you like that process? Part well, of the I process? wasn't
2: given the choice. It just kind of. I wasn't given the choice. It just kind of happened. But I'm kind of explaining like why, at a young age, like I felt confident enough to give notice at BLT and then do my own thing. I knew I was ready to go do my own thing when I was kind of keeping ideas and dishes in my pocket and not sharing them with Laurent. You know, I was like, I was writing notebooks with ideas and I was like, oh, this one's too good of an idea to give to BLT. You know what I mean? And that was when I knew, okay, it's, it's time. And I started to look for spaces. And one of my dad's old managers is actually the guy that introduced me to the space on Reed Street.
0: That's really cool. I'm always curious how someone who goes off to do their own thing and succeed, like what's that moment? How do they know when? And your story, your example of what you were just saying is really interesting, really fascinating.
2: Yeah, listen, it's the hardest thing for a chef to do is to take that plunge, you know, because opening restaurants is not for everybody. That doesn't make you a good chef or bad chef. So not for everybody. But you know, that plunge is, you know, a serious one. Like you could be a chef to cuisine for somebody forever. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a much different animal when you say I'm putting my name on the front door.
0: We had discussed when, Larry, when we thought Mark had made it as a chef in a way. When did you know you had made it as a chef?
1: I knew I was on my way when I was at Regine's and then at the River Cafe, I, I just knew that it, it was like opening a new restaurant in a certain sense because it was just in so, so much, the kitchen was in such a disarray that it was really hard to understand. And I remember I I got a call from Craig Claiborne at the time, and we were talking about what was gonna be going on and so on. And he said, yeah, he said, you know, the River Cafe was a perfect example of continental cuisine from a continent not yet discovered. Because it was all over the place. And And just, if I could like
2: touch on that too, right now, actually at, at Forge, my restaurant, we, Every week, we've been doing it now since we reopened. So I think we're in like week six or seven. But every week, we're studying one of the like founding American chefs because I don't think the younger kids really understand how hard it was for people like my dad and Alice and Dean and Mark and Paul and I'm only naming first names because I think you guys know. Obviously, I know who you know who they are, but but you know, like the, like I swear to God, you say to a 25 year old kid, "Who is Mark Miller?" and they don't know. You know what I mean? And there was no Food Network, and they weren't on the Food Network, and but we're doing these weekly. We'll call them Googles, whatever. But. And we're kind of trying to show not just the cooks, but the servers too, like the fact that there is even such a thing as an American chef, you know, my dad was obviously leading the way to talk about, you know, taking that plunge to look at an entire industry and say, we're American and we're proud and we can do this. I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but I mean, in the beginning, it was like a laughing stock. Like, like, what do you mean? It's impossible. I'm sure my dad heard numerous times that's impossible. It's not going to happen. You can't do that. And I just don't know if those guys and women, men and women, get enough credit for. Taming the Wild West the way they did.
0: Hundred percent. So is that program like a staff pre-shift research and share type thing, or is it something you like that's going to see like be on the menu, like showcasing Dean Fairing or whoever?
2: Uh, you know, it's funny you ask that. I have stuff on the menu all the time, influenced by some of those names I just mentioned, and I've done throwback menus to to an American Place and to my dad numerous times. We actually just did an American Place. Quote unquote pop up it was one night only, but we did it was probably what, like six months ago? I think so. Something like that. But somebody bought out the restaurant and they, they were like, you know, you can do any theme you want. And I suggested how about we do an American place? And we did the whole menu, the bread, when it wasn't interpretations of dishes, it was the
1: dishes.
0: Were you there, Larry? Did they represent well or what?
1: Yeah, it was a great a great presentation and a great a great experience.
2: And I think you see how timeless the food is too. I mean, there's a little more heavy cream than we do now, but at the end of the day, the dishes were, you could put them on menus today.
0: All right. Touching upon restaurant, some of the restaurants, Mark, I feel like I've noticed this theme with many of your places, like this sense of community in a way. I think I saw, you know, with Forge, you wanted people to not have to get dressed up and be fancy, but walk in from the street have good food, enjoy an excellent meal. I even think the story of how peasant came to be is so fascinating. Can you just share for people listening, like that, the, the peasant story?
2: If there's a lesson to be learned from the peasant story is like, just always understand that. And I try to explain this to, to younger people too. The importance of when you speak, what you're speaking of, believing in what you're saying and who you're saying it to and also understanding that like when you do speak, like people are listening and you, your words are important, just like today. But, you know, I lived on Mulberry Street, so I ate at Peasant many times over the years. Well, Frank and I were friendly. I wouldn't go so far as say we were friends, but we were friendly. Every time I came in, we would say hi and he would send us dishes. And But I was like head over heels in love with Peasant, just like many other people. And I was hosting a New York City Food and Wine Festival dinner there in two thousand. 18 or 19. And I just, I gave a speech about, you know, just how much I love Peasant, how much I love Frank. And Frank is, was, is kind of inspiration to me. He's like the antithesis of a celebrity chef. I never liked the term celebrity chef, but, but, he, you know, every time I went to Peasant, he was, in, he was literally working the pasta station with a white bandana or a napkin tied around his head, always cooking, always a little angry, like just, but always there. I'm not, I ate there 20 times. I don't, there was never a night that he wasn't there. And not just their expert anymore, like cooking the food. I tried to work the pasta station with him a couple of times. It's insane. But anyway, I gave this speech just about that. This is Frank is like what every chef wishes they could be. And after the speech, he was just kind of taken aback. I think he was a little surprised to hear how much how important Peasant was, and Peasant at the end of the day was influential on the way that Forge looks, and you know, kind of my philosophies on simplicity. And but anyway, he was taken aback by what I said. And because of that speech, he called me a couple months later and he wanted to make, he told me he was retiring and I was upset that he was retiring obviously. And I didn't realize he was asking me if I wanted it. But you know, halfway through the conversation, I was like, Frank, wait a second. Are you asking me if I want peasant? I thought he was asking if I would like cook dinner one night to like the last week or something like that. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden it started to come into focus and you know, he kind of in, in his Frank way was like, what the fuck does it sound like I'm saying? Yes. And right. he was very adamant though. He wanted to be instrumental in who took it over. Not to keep it peasant. He made it very clear that I could do whatever I wanted with it. But he didn't want it to turn into, I think first he said, I don't want this to turn into like an Apple store or a bank or, but at the same time, like, if it's going to be a restaurant, like I don't know, it's just too much like blood and sweat and tears in this place. It'd be a shame if somebody like, you know, that didn't care for it took it, took it over. So... We struck a deal. And at the time, most people don't know this, but I was already signed up to do a wood-burning restaurant, wood-burning Italian restaurant in the meatpacking district. But I couldn't say no to peasant. I just couldn't say no. So I did it. And then that other thing fell through. So it ended up working out, but which I guess is another lesson too. I try to tell young kids all the time and you got to follow your gut it's not always your brain. Sometimes your heart has to tell you what to do and your brain usually disagrees with your heart. But if you don't take those chances, you'll never know. If you don't swing for a home run, you're never going to hit one. But that doesn't mean you need to swing for a home run every pitch.
0: Can you, either one of you, I want to hear more about one fifth, a couple things. Does community come in to play there? And just in general, I hear there's some fun things you all are working on together there?
2: Yeah, all the restaurants are, you know, we try to do, you know, listen, in the restaurant business, you got to work a lot. You know, hearing Alex talk about my dad and the way that he was in the kitchen, I try to do the same thing now. I think as I've gotten older, you know, again, as I just said, you work a lot, many hours, so like, why not try to make it where everybody's working there is in a good place in the community. And now that there's three, we try to have the three kind of interact as much as possible. And, you know, we just had a big chef collective kind of lunch last week and we're trying to do the same thing with the managers and my dad is now it sounds weird to say the sentence out loud but my dad is like the culinary consultant for the respect hospitality group and i'll let him talk a little more about the things that he finds but he's found some amazing ingredients and who better in the world to find cool ingredients than than the man himself so i asked him if he would do it last year and it's been great
0: Talk to me about what you're up to there, Larry.
1: First of all, it's a great honor and privilege to be able to work hand-in-hand hand with Mark. What I try to do is influence the restaurants by ingredients, which is really goes all the way back to my roots. So I'm always looking for things with Mark. Like I just ended up getting samples of one of the few purebred, 100% purebred Wagyu cattle from up in Vermont. We get rose, we call it rose veal because the veal's not really white because it's naturally raised. So we get a half a veal in every so often and distribute it amongst the restaurants.
0: Is this a term you invented? Are we foreshadowing here like 20 years from now, rose veal's going to be a thing that you you know invented or created or what?
1: We're going to try to get the patent this time. <laughs> and then we found Mark always talked about mutton, that he would love to try mutton and get it in. He went to a restaurant to eat mutton, but and I'm not going to say which restaurant, but it wasn't mutton. But I found a guy in upstate New York, and actually in the Hudson Valley, that had mutton. So we were running mutton racks, like the top of a rack. I think they call it a Denver cut. So it was like barbecued mutton bones. And then, of course, as everything when you're dealing with farmers. Somehow the wig out or you have to really keep them... Like massaging them and keeping them coming. Like the veal guy, he can't find anybody to bring it down from his farmers up by Saratoga. So I just sent him a text saying, Well, I'll meet you halfway and bring it down to New York. That's how important it is. Love that.
0: And then there's, isn't there another part of this program I made a note? The Pinza, is that how, am I pronouncing it correctly?
1: Yeah. That was something that I, when I was at, out at the conservatory, we grew our own wheat, and they were all ancient grains. So we were working with that, and my friend Mark Miller told me about these the pinzas and so on, what you could do with it. It's an ancient grain pizza, and we just started working on it and fell in love with it. I went to Rome to study with somebody and came back, and it's a, basically a pinzer's Roman pizza. I know where
0: I'm coming on my next trip to New York. I'm based in Chicago, Larry, so... I always have my list of when I come back to New York. All right, for both of you, as I mentioned before we started recording, the podcast celebrates social impact with every guest that we talk with and learning how each of them do it keeps me and the team that works on this inspired. And as you all have your own way, whether it's through an event, a cause, supporting another friend's cause, whatever it may be. But I just wanted to give you both a moment to shine a light on some of those causes, whether it's causes you've been involved with in the past, ones you currently are, anything upcoming.
1: Well, we just finished an event that I co-founded 35 years ago for City Meals for Meals on Wheels. And in those thirty-five years, it's called the Chef's Tribute to it was originally going to be a birthday party for James Beard. And he passed away. So we decided to do a tribute to James Beard. And over the years, it's morphed into a chef's tribute. So 35 years, some of the best chefs in the country have come. Some of the best chefs in Europe have come. And like I started to say, in 35 years, I think we've raised $26 million.
0: Unbelievable. And if anyone is... An avid listener of the podcast, we've probably heard Waxman talk about that event. We've probably heard Wolfgang Puck talk about mm-hmm. that event. So a number of incredible chefs and supporters. Oh, it was
1: Jonathan Waxman and I that founded it, founded that dinner. I love it. It's so cool. I would love to get to that one one day. How about you, Mark? I know you've got a
0: number of things on your plate.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, the charity is that, uh, you know, I'm like on the board or very involved is the Chefs for Kids Cancer. I'm sure you know the story of her, but Gretchen, her little boy, passed away. I think he was five. She started with cookies. They did a cookie sale one year, and now it's turned into you know millions and millions of dollars for pediatric cancer research, which for whatever reason is the least funded cancer research, which makes no sense to anybody that I tell that to. But. So I've been very involved with that. Obviously, the City Meals on Wheels. I've jumped on with that. A City Harvest. Again, people I find are always surprised at how generous chefs are. And I try to explain that it's just another extension of what we do. Like our entire life is generosity. So you tell me that I have to show up somewhere to cook for something and I can help save a kid's life or put food on somebody's plate that needs it. Just show me where to go and when. And I'm there.
0: Larry, is this something you instill like in Mark or your kids or as Mark kind of alluded to, is this, do we feel this like more of a natural thing for chefs? Well, yeah, I
1: think chefs are very generous. They're very generous with their time. 20, well, maybe 35 years ago, you could, if you wanted to, you could cook at a charity event three times a week. But it is about giving back. It's about just giving back to your community. You have a talent and you should help other people with it.
0: Thank you both. For that, I'm going to do a quick speed round and then we'll close it out. And I will ask a question and we'll give both a turn. So, number one, what did you have for dinner last night? Mark, you can go first.
2: I had dinner at a restaurant called Chop Shop on 10th Avenue. I had ribs, some spicy cucumber salad, a shrimp summer roll, and some Chinese broccoli.
0: Larry, how about you?
1: Last night, my wife and I had, I cooked at home and we, I made grilled swordfish with white beans, tomatoes, and spinach, and a little bit of uh, zatar spiced uh, butter.
0: Number two, name a smell in the kitchen you love, Mark.
1: Garlic in olive oil. The smell of a wood-burning oven. Nice.
0: How about name a smell in the kitchen you hate?
2: <laughs> smell, I, what I hate something
1: burning.
0: Probably a backed-up grease trap. What pisses you off in the kitchen?
1: Laziness. It was the same thing. People who don't focus got the wrath. How about what makes you happy in the kitchen?
2: Kind of like the antithesis of laziness. Actually, an easier way to answer that, watching people smile after they taste the first bite of food.
1: Well, right now, what makes me happy is, A, being able to work with Mark. And second, it's I always love meeting young cooks and talking to them and probably interrupting their day. But just I always get energized by being around young chefs.
0: That's cool. I'm sure they're thrilled that
1: you are interrupting their day. Last
0: one, Larry, one word that describes Mark. Creative. Mark, one word that describes your dad. Genius. Love you guys. All right, closing out here. This is the start of our duos season, as I mentioned. It's usually been one guest and this season is all going to be pairs, duos. And some people make great duos. Clearly, you guys have found a groove. And some duos have a hard time working together, quite frankly. So for the restaurant cook, manager, server, college student, business person in general, that's listening and maybe going through a tough time with the other half of their duo, your father son, but how do you make it work? And then I also want to know the best advice for a future duo so we can split it up.
1: Well I think the way that it works is that you is that you have mutual respect for each other. You know what lanes you're driving in and you know you just the, there's the ego goes away when Mark and I are talking. There's there's just no ego about it.
2: Yeah, and I was going to say I think I think my hardest part in the beginning of our relationship working together was maybe trying to act like he wasn't my dad. And I think as I've gotten older It's more about embracing it and saying, you know, yes, I'm working with my father. And like, I think my advice to somebody maybe working with their wife or their brother or cousin or father, son, whatever it is, you know, like it's okay to acknowledge that and treat each other like that at work, too. Because if you pretend like it's something that it's not, like I I find, at least I found, at least for me, that was when it started to click or to, like, hum a little bit, was like, yeah, you know what? You are my dad, or he is my dad, and we are working together, and... That would be my advice to somebody if they're having a hard time. Take a step back and realize that you love that person and you should
0: enjoy it. Thank you both. I appreciate it greatly. Thank you for your time. This is a heck of a way to kick off this next season. So I knew I had some great stories coming, but the ones we continue to sprinkle in were incredible. And I think this is going to be quite an inspiring episode for people definitely inside the industry and likely outside of the industry as well. So appreciate your time both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Chefs Larry and Mark Forgione. Find Mark on Instagram at markforgione. To learn more about City Meals on Wheels, go to citymeals.org. To learn more about Cookies for Kids Cancer, go to cookiesforkidscancer.org. And to learn more about City Harvest, go to cityharvest.org. We'll share a link to those websites in the episode notes and at beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan me. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. And as always, a special shout out to my wife Katie. If you do have a moment, we'd love and appreciate it if you could rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.